Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. The water was just perfect today, eh, John? You bet. Say, what's all that commotion? Nah, it's just some drunkard. Leave him be. No, wait. That's the same drunk I saw sleeping it off against the seawall last night. Sounds like it's none of our business, all right? Let's go. Something's wrong. I swear, it looks like he hasn't moved a bit since I last saw him. Excuse me, please, let me through. My God. John, what's wrong? Call the constable. Hurry, man. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our first episode on the Somerton Man. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Today's investigation takes us to the beaches of Australia in 1948 and an unsolved murder famous not only in Australia, but all over the world. This is a tale of secrets and spies. Of a mysterious woman and a love triangle gone wrong. Of a coded message hidden in a book of poems. A message that might hold the key to finding a killer. 1948 was a dark time. World War II had ended just three years earlier. Over 60 million were dead, including more than 27,000 Australians. The dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end the war heralded the start of a nuclear arms race. It was the beginning of a new war, the Cold War. And in 1948, the Cold War was hot. The British were testing rockets at their newly founded secret weapons base in southern Australia. Russia, then known as the Soviet Union, was blockading Berlin and racing to develop its own atomic bomb. The Soviet atomic project, begun during World War II, would result in its first successful test in the summer of 1949, thanks to Soviet spies planted in the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain. What makes you so sure that spies helped the Soviets build their nukes? The United States Signal Intelligence Service, now better known as the NSA, created a counterintelligence program during World War II to decipher Soviet cables. It's known by its code name, the Venona Project. The Venona Project's original goal was to determine whether Stalin was planning to betray his alliance with the U.S. in favor of a new alliance with the Nazis. By the time the Venona Project's codebreakers cracked the Soviets' encrypted messages in 1946, the war was already over. But what the codebreakers discovered in those cables was terrifying. Sir, it's urgent. Look at this telegraph. Jesus! These are the technical documents for the Manhattan Project. One of the scientists at Los Alamos is a traitor. The Venona cryptographers found evidence of atomic spies at Los Alamos who leaked America's nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union, enabling them to create their own atomic bomb. But what does a United States counterintelligence program have to do with Australia? The Venona operatives didn't just find Soviet spies in America. They intercepted messages revealing an extensive network of Soviet spies operating out of Australia. 
Because of Australia's lack of security, the United States banned all classified information from Australia in 1948. That must have been pretty embarrassing for Australia. Oh, it was. In fact, this is what led Australia's Prime Minister Ben Chiefly to found the Australian Security Intelligence Organization against the protests of his own Labour Party. How can you do this, Chiefly? Isn't this against everything we stand for? You haven't seen the reports that I have. Trust me when I say it's vital to our country's interests that we have our own intelligence organization. But what about civil liberty? The rights of the people? That kind of naivete is what's allowing the people to spy on us for the Reds. By 1948, spies had infiltrated not just Western governments, but popular culture as well. Hollywood produced a myriad of spy films in the 40s, and in 1946, Hitchcock released his masterpiece, Notorious, about double agents and poison. I am married to an American agent. Well, what do I do? There's nothing to do. I'm done. Finished. I'll find out. They won't find out. Alicia, I'll take care of her myself. No, not that way. I stood looking at her when she was asleep. I could have... Quiet, Alex. Let me arrange this one. Listen to me. No one must know what she is. There must be no suspicion of her, of you. Or me. She must be allowed to move about freely, but she will be on a leash. She will learn nothing further to inform. She must go, but it must happen slowly. If she could become ill and remain ill for a time until... Ooh, watching Ingrid Bergman's husband poison her with that cup of coffee sends chills through me every time. Funny you should mention spies and poison food. That brings us right back to the body on the beach, the Summerton Man. Why call him the Summerton Man? Why not use his name? Because to this day, his name is unknown. On November 30th, 1948, the Summerton Man arrived at Adelaide train station somewhere between 8.30 and 10.54 in the morning after traveling on an overnight train. He may have gone next door to the public baths for a shower and a shave. I'd want a shower too if I'd been on a train all night. Then he bought himself a new ticket. How can I help you today? One ticket, please. Destination? Henley Beach, the 10.50 train. Taking a little seaside vacation? Not exactly. Visiting family? It's complicated. I'm hoping to see my, a friend of mine. Have a lovely visit. But he never used that train ticket to Henley Beach. Instead, he went to the cloakroom. Excuse me, I'd like to check my suitcase. Certainly, sir. We can hold that for you. Remember that suitcase. It's going to be important later. It's now past 11 a.m. After missing his train and checking his suitcase, the Summerton man walked across the street and bought a bus ticket to Glen Elg from conductor Arthur Holderness. Later that day, an unknown man, most likely the Summerton man himself, knocked on the door of a quiet suburban house on Mosley Street. This house was only a five-minute walk away from Summerton Beach, where the man's body would be found the very next day. Its owner was an enigmatic woman who, for decades, was known only by the pseudonym Justin, J-E-S-T-Y-N. Why the pseudonym? Well, we'll get to that soon enough. You're waiting for someone? I'm looking for Jess. For the young woman who lives here? Oh, sorry. She's been out since this morning. (sighs) Want me to let her know you stopped by? Please, if you don't mind. 
The Somerton man walked away down Mosley Street towards the beach. We don't know much about what Somerton man did for the next 12 hours. But we do know that he ate a pasty, little suspecting this would be his last meal. At least he got to have something sweet. If I was going to be murdered, I'd like to have a last slice of cake. Ah, he ate a pasty, not a pastry. What's the difference? Pasties originated in Cornwall before becoming popular in Australia. They're savory baked snacks consisting of half-moon-shaped crusts filled with meat and vegetables. Mmm, sounds sort of like a Cornish empanada. Sounds tasty. Mmm, not if it's been poisoned. Was the Somerton man killed by a poisoned pasty? Let's find out. At 7 o'clock, a jeweler named John Bain Lyons went for an evening walk with his wife, enjoying the pleasant ocean breeze. As they passed by the crippled children's home, that faced the ocean, they noticed the Somerton man sprawled on the sand, his head resting against the seawall. Look at that odd fellow. He must be completely south. What's he doing with his arm? As the couple watched, the Somerton man clumsily raised his right arm into the air. Maybe he's trying to smoke a cigarette? Good lord, I hope not. He probably has enough liquor on his breath to start a fire. And down goes the arm. Maybe he heard you. Good. Now we can sleep it off. Half an hour later, the streetlights were on, illuminating the darkness. A young couple, George Straps and his girlfriend, Olive Neal, went out for a stroll on the promenade above the beach. They looked down at the Somerton man from above. Who in heaven's name wears a fancy suit to the beach? And new shoes? Of course you would notice the shoes. Well, they're shining in the lamplight. They're that polished. I'm surprised he hasn't ruined him walking down the beach. Will you stop with the shoes? I think it's strange is all. Is he all right? He's awfully still. He's probably just had one too many. Ugh. These damn mosquitoes won't stop biting me. It's because you're so sweet. <laughs> stop. We're in public. I don't see anybody. Right down there, George, that guy on the beach. He doesn't seem to mind. How can he sleep with all these mosquitoes all over him? He's dead to the world. (laughs) (laughs) But as it turned out, the Somerton man wasn't dead to the world. He was genuinely dead. At 6.45 a.m., Constable John Moss arrived on the scene and examined the body. The Somerton man was lying in the same position that John Lyons had noticed him in the night before. His head and shoulders were propped up against the seawall, as though he were gazing out at the ocean. His legs were stretched down in front of him, feet crossed, and one hand was extended. Resting on his lapel was a partially smoked cigarette, but strangely, there was no sign of any scorch marks on his clothes. The Somerton man had no wallet or ID on him. All he had in his pockets were the unused train ticket to Henley Beach Station and the used bus ticket to Glenelg, a quarter box's worth of Bryant and May matches, and an army cigarette box with pricey cancitas hidden inside. Well, strange that the cigarettes were in the wrong box. You think they were poisoned? Well, they're definitely suspicious. Well, what else did he have in his pockets? Nothing much. An American aluminum comb and a half-finished pack of Juicy Fruit gum. Oh, the mystery deepens. How so? Well, it wasn't just the Somerton man's comb that was American. In 1948, Juicy Fruit Gum was popular with Americans, not Australians, and his trouser pocket had been sewn up with a distinctive orange barber wax thread that wasn't available in Australia. 
Well, maybe the Somerton man wasn't Australian at all. Maybe he was an American spy. The Somerton man's clothing would support your spy theory. He was wearing a handsome, double-breasted gray and brown coat, a white shirt, a red and blue tie, a knitted pullover, brown trousers, and those well-polished shoes. No trench coat and sunglasses? Doesn't sound like spy clothing to me. The labels had been deliberately snipped off every article of clothing the Somerton man was wearing. His killer wanted to make sure that he couldn't be identified. But how do we know for certain that this was murder? Maybe the Somerton man died of a heart attack. No, the coroner's autopsy proved otherwise. Ooh, what was the cause of death? We'll talk about it after the break. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to our story. Now, let's look into the autopsy of the Somerton Man. Unidentified male, appears to be in excellent physical condition. He's 5'11", approximately 45 years old, clean-shaven, graying ginger hair, gray eyes, and uncalloused hands. His liver and spleen and the blood vessels in his brain are congested, but his heart looks completely normal. So it can't have given out from natural causes. Not likely. Let's examine the stomach. Aha, uh-huh. look at that. Absolutely congested with blood. Take specimen samples. His heart failure must be due to poison, perhaps a barbiturate. Dwyer had samples of the Somerton man and the pasty he found in his stomach tested, but all of the tests came up negative for common poisons. So maybe he wasn't poisoned after all. Or maybe the poison was so rare that ordinary tests couldn't identify it. Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, a professor consulted on the Somerton man's cause of death, certainly thought that this was the case. The poisons he suspected the killer used were so deadly that he wouldn't say them aloud during the inquest. Instead, he wrote two possible poisons on a piece of paper, digitalis and strophanthin. Strophanthin was traditionally used by a Somali tribe to poison their arrows. In 1948, not many Australians would have known about an obscure poison like that. Ah, but the KGB knew all about poisons like strophanthin. In 1921, the Soviets founded a secret facility entirely devoted to researching and developing rare poisons. They tested their concoctions on prisoners, searching for poisons that couldn't be detected post-mortem. In the 1930s and the 1940s, Soviet spies were actively using these poisons to eliminate enemies and critics of the Soviet Union. So maybe one of those Soviet spies poisoned the Somerton Man. Maybe the Somerton Man really was like Ingrid Bergman in Notorious. 
a double agent who was discovered and poisoned. If we go off that American juicy fruit gum and comb, then it's possible he was not just a double agent, but an American spy. That would fit with why the Soviets wanted to kill him. But if the poisons were so rare, why all the secrecy from Hicks? Why wouldn't he name the poisons out loud? Well, because while the average person may not have known about digitalis or strophanthin or been able to find them on a pharmacy shelf, those drugs could be obtained from a chemist. The buyer wouldn't have even needed to give the chemist a reason for the purchase. But why would a chemist sell poisons? Both digitalis, which is used to prepare digoxin, and strophanthin, also known as wabane, contain cardiac glycosides used to treat heart disease. So it would have been a piece of cake for a Soviet sleeper agent in Australia to buy the poison. Precisely. But we still don't know who the Summerton man really was. He must have had a family people that loved him. Initially, Adelaide's local newspaper, The Advertiser, identified the Somerton man as E.C. Johnson. It seemed like an easy solution had been found until E.C. Johnson walked into a police station to let them know that he was actually alive. The investigators were stumped. Remember, the Somerton man had no ID, and the killer had removed all of the labels on his clothing. That suitcase, that brown suitcase that the Somerton man left at the Adelaide station. Good memory. On January 14th, 1949, two weeks after the Somerton man's body was discovered, Adelaide station workers discovered a brown suitcase. The suitcase label had been carefully removed. Just like with the Somerton man's clothes. What was hidden inside this suitcase? Was this the big break the detectives needed? Unfortunately, someone had gone to a lot of effort to make sure that the Somerton man couldn't be identified by the contents of his suitcase. Not only were the suitcase tags missing, but the labels had been removed from every article of clothing in the suitcase, except for three items. The name T. Keen on a tie spelled K-E-A-N-E. The name Keen on a laundry bag also spelled K-E-A-N-E. And Keen on a vest, spelled K-E-A-N. Looks like we finally discovered the dead man's name. Well, not so fast. Detectives Leane and Brown couldn't find anyone by that name who matched the Somerton man. I've just heard back from FBI in Scotland Yard. Not a single missing person who matches the victim with the name T. Keen or Keen. And they tried Keen without the E? With the E, without the E, nothing. We're barking up the wrong tree. Funny, isn't it? Except for the laundry bag, the singlet, and the tie, every single other piece of clothing in the suitcase had its label cut out of it. Yeah, just like the victim's clothes. So why, after all that effort, was the name Keen left on those three items? What makes them different? You know, the victim didn't have his luggage ticket on him. And that suitcase was unlocked when the railway staff turned it over to us. What if it was tampered with? You think the killer might have planted those clothes to throw us off the trail? There's that possibility. Maybe the Vic bought his clothes secondhand. Yeah, well, whether he bought them secondhand or the killer planted them, I think we can both agree Keen wasn't his real name. Guess it's back to the drawing board. So there wasn't anything in that suitcase that could help the detectives figure out who the Somerton man was? The only thing that suitcase contained was more mysteries. For one thing, they couldn't find any socks. <laughs> Nobody travels without at least one spare set of socks. Right? 
And they found unused stationery, but no letters to or from the Summerton man. That's like finding a cell phone with no text message history. They found more of that same orange thread the Summerton man used to repair his trouser pocket. Thread that wasn't available in Australia. They found a stencil kit, normally used by third mates on merchant ships to stencil cargo. More evidence our Summerton man was a world traveler. They found a table knife with the handle strangely cut down and altered, and they found a coat that had been feather-stitched. And the only country that had the machinery to create that feather-stitch was the United States. Maybe the Summerton man really was an American spy. But there's still no solid evidence on his real identity. What now? By early spring, several people had been incorrectly identified as the Summerton Man. This included the still-alive E.C. Johnson, a woodcutter named Robert Walsh, who was too old and whose hands would have been too calloused to be the Summerton Man, a typewriter mechanic from Darwin, Tommy Reed, the ship's hand, a missing husband named Bailey, a sheep handler, a man from Victoria, a man named Solomonson, and a Swede named Tim Reed. Investigators were at a dead end. The coroner was out of ideas. So on April 5th, the coroner wrote to Professor John Cleland, asking for his help with the case. John Cleland was an acclaimed naturalist and microbiologist and the professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide. 40 species of animals, plants, and fungi would be named after him, as well as a new genus, Clelandia. If anyone was perceptive enough to crack this case, it was Cleland. Cleland re-examined the Summerton man's body, and he noticed the crucial clue that everyone else had missed. A cryptic clue so important that it might lead detectives to the real killer. A clue so mysterious that to this day, it is how the Summerton man is remembered. Hidden away inside the fob pocket of the Summerton man's trousers was a tiny scrap of paper. Printed on that paper were two words. Two words that will forever haunt the case of the Summerton man. Tamam Shud. The phrase is Persian, a contraction of Tamain Shudan, and its meaning is all too appropriate. In English, the words translate to finished or it is ended. Just like the life of the Summerton man. On June 14th, the Summerton man was laid to rest, but police had a new puzzle on their hands, Tamam Shud. At first, they didn't even know what the words Tamam Shud meant. Public library officials translated the phrase for them, but it was a reporter who clued detectives into its significance. This is Detective Brown. Detective, this is Frank Kennedy. I have no new comments for the papers at this moment, Mr. Kennedy. No, you got it all wrong. I'm not asking for a quote. Then what do you want? That piece of paper you found in the dead guy's pockets. The words printed on that paper were Tamam Should, right? Like I said, I have no comment. Will you listen for a moment? There's a book that's been popular since the war. A book whose last two words are Tamam Should. Which book? If I were you, I'd start calling up libraries and bookshops for a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. The Rubaiyat was a selection of the poems written in quatrains by the 11th century Persian poet Omar Khayyam that had been loosely translated and arranged by Edward Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald's translation of the poems focused on the central theme of Carpe Diem, seize the day and live life without regrets. And if the wine you drink, the lip you press, end in the nothing all things end in, yes, then fancy while thou art, thou art but what thou shalt be, nothing, thou shalt not be less. 
Or as today's teens like to say, YOLO, you only live once. The words Tamam should were the last two words of the Rubaiyat. The equivalent of writing the end when a story is finished. The YOLO theme of the Rubaiyat, along with the fact that the words on the piece of paper in the Summerton man's pocket meant the end, led Cleland to a very different conclusion from Coroner Dwyer. Cleland didn't think the Summerton man had been murdered. Cleland now believed that the Summerton man had killed himself. Well, he had good reason to think this was suicide. Four years earlier, a man named Joseph Saul Hyam Marshall was found dead from poisoning in Mossman, Australia. Like the Summerton man, Joseph died by the edge of a body of water. And like the Summerton man, Joseph was very fond of the Rubaiyat. He was found with a copy of the book lying across his chest. He'd underlined verse 23. Ah, make the most of what we yet may spend, before we too into the dust descend dust under dust and under dust to lie. Sons wine, sons song, sons singer, and sons end. Coroner Cookson determined Joseph Marshall committed suicide by swallowing barbituric acid. Clearly, Cleland thought this was a similar case. Well, maybe the Somerton man took his own life, spending his final moments gazing out over the ocean's expanse and ruminating on his favorite book of poems. I don't buy it. Why not? Joseph Marshall had a history of mental illness. He tried to kill himself before. With the Summerton man, there were just too many unanswered questions. Detectives Leane and Brown weren't satisfied either. They put out a countrywide search for the copy of the Rubaiyat that the words Taman Shud had been cut from. Well, luckily, they had some distinctive characteristics to look for. The words Taman Shud were printed in an unusual font, and the verso side of the paper was blank. Police asked the general public for help releasing photographs of the scrap of paper to Australian newspapers. And at long last, they got results. On July 23rd, a Glenelg businessman or doctor strolled into Detective Leanne's office. A businessman or a doctor? Why the lack of certainty? Police never revealed the man's true name or occupation. They also never explained why they kept this information hidden. All we know is the man's pseudonym, Ronald Francis. Francis brought Detective Leanne a copy of the Rubiette and a very peculiar story. So, last November, me and my brother-in-law went for a drive together. What day exactly? It was around the time of the RAAF air pageant. If I had to put a date on it, I'd say November 30th. I kept my car parked on Jetty Road in Glenelg. So you were parked just a few hundred yards from Somerton Beach? That's right. So my brother-in-law and I get to the car. We open up the doors and my brother-in-law spots this book lying in the back seat. How did it get in the car in the first place? I never locked my car. This seems risky. You don't worry about something getting stolen? There usually isn't something in there to steal. So you find this copy of the Rubaiyat, then what? My brother-in-law put it in the glove compartment and we just left it there. Why did you wait eight months to turn in a book that didn't belong to you? See, my brother-in-law figured it must have been my book, and I figured it was his. Nothing worth talking about. But then I saw this article in the paper about the unknown man at Somerton Beach and how you were looking for a missing book. So we went back and checked, and the bottom of the last page was cut clean out. Detectives compared the color and texture of the scrap of paper with the words Tamam should to Ronald Francis's copy of the Rubaiyat. It was a match. Their first big break in the case. The book contained not just poems, but new mysteries. Leanne examined the book with a magnifying glass and found a strange series of capital letters handwritten on the back cover. Police then looked at the code under ultraviolet light and discovered a sequence of letters divided into five lines. 
First line starts with a W. Or is that an M? Then there's a space, then R, G, O, A, B, A, B, D. Second line also starts with either W or M, then L-I-A-O-I. But looks like this line's been crossed out. Third line, W-T-B-I-M-P-A-N-E-T-P. But then there's a large space before the fourth line. Think it's significant? Maybe. Fourth line starts just like the second line that was crossed out. M-L-I-A-B-O, a space, then B-O-A-I-A-Q-C. Um, now there's an X above the O in the fourth line, and then those two lines above some of the letters. Last line. I-T-T-M-T-S-A-M-S-T-G-A-B. And it looks like part of the last line has been underlined, too. What's it all mean? It's got to be some kind of secret code. We need to get this to Army headquarters in Melbourne. The police sent the code to Army and Naval Intelligence. The Navy was known to have the best cryptographers in the country. Well, they must have been able to crack it, right? Unfortunately, neither the code breakers from the Army nor the code breakers in the Navy were able to decipher the mysterious message. The police even released the code to the general public in an attempt to solve it. But no one was able to unlock the cipher's hidden meaning. Not another dead end. Luckily, the secret code wasn't the only thing that Detective Liane discovered on the back cover of the Rubaiyat. He also found a phone number. Finally, a real lead. Detective Liane dialed the number. And, well, we'll listen in on that phone call after this quick message from our sponsors. Now, the story continues. Okay. So, Detective Liane called the number, and a mysterious woman answered the phone. Hello? Uh, Hello, ma'am. Who do I have the pleasure of speaking with? How did you get this number? Ma'am, I found your number in a book. The phone book? That's impossible. My number's unlisted. Good day. Ma'am, wait, please. Uh, This is very important. Fine. Why are you calling? I'm Detective Liane, and I'm investigating the death of the unknown man found at Summerton Beach. Maybe you've read about the case in the papers? Everyone's heard of that case. It's the talk of the town, but I don't know anything about that man. I think maybe you do. I found your phone number in his copy of the Rubaiyat. Where do you want to meet? Was this the woman who lived right by Somerton Beach? The one that the Somerton man tried to visit when he got off the bus? That's right. The phone number led police to the woman in the house on Mosley Street. She didn't want to be identified, so detectives referred to her by a pseudonym, Justin. Are you familiar with the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam? Yes. I had a copy while I was training as a nurse at North Shore Hospital during the war. And is this book still in your possession? No, I gave it to a friend of mine years ago. Who is this friend of yours? Alfred Boxall. The Somerton man had a name. Alfred Boxall. The detectives were excited, too. They took Justin to the office of Paul Francis Lawson. Lawson had just spent the previous month making a plaster mold of the Somerton Man. Well, the police knew that burying the Somerton Man would mean burying a critical piece of evidence. So they had Lawson make the plaster bust of the man's face, as well as separate molds of his ears to help identify him. Why were his ears important? Well, we'll get to that. But for now, let's focus on that crucial day when Justin visited Lawson's office with the detectives to identify the Somerton man. Right this way, ma'am. Are you ready? Yes. Lawson, 
remove the cover. Are you all right? I'm fine. You're very pale. I don't want you fainting on us now. Maybe a glass of water? I said I'm fine. Let's just get on with it. When did you last see Mr. Boxel? I got a letter from him after the war when I'd moved to Melbourne. I wrote back to tell him I was married. And you haven't seen him since? No. And he's the only man you ever gave a copy of the Rubaiyat? You didn't have any other gentleman in your life? What kind of woman do you think I am, detective? I'm sorry, I didn't mean it like that, but I need to know. Was Boxall the only one? Yes. All right, ma'am, now this is very important. Does this bust resemble Boxall? I... I don't know. Maybe you should take another look. That's not necessary. You just said you're not sure whether it's Boxall. And I don't see how staring at your feet like that is going to help you figure it out. Don't be so hard on her, Lawson. Ma'am, think carefully. Is this him? Is this Alfred Boxel? Justin may not have been able to positively identify the bust as Boxel, but who else could the Summerton man possibly be? Well, it had to be Boxel. He's the only one who had a copy of the Rubaiyat from Justin. And the Summerton man's Rubaiyat had her number written in it. Well, there's just one catch. What? Detectives found Alfred Boxel the next day. Very much alive. Uh, excuse me, is your name Alfred Boxel? That's me. Were you in the army? Yes, as a matter of fact. Were you ever posted near Clifton Gardens Hotel? How do you know all this? What's this about? Did you hear about the dead man found on the beach in Adelaide? I don't think so. How could Alfred Boxall be alive? What about his copy of the Rubaiyat? He still had it. On the front of the book, the mystery woman had signed her nickname, Justin. Oh, so that's where the police got her pseudonym. Mm-hmm. And next to her signature, Justin had written out verse 70 from the Rubaiyat. Indeed, indeed, repentance oft before, I swore, but was I sober when I swore? And then and then came spring, and rose in hand, my threadbare penitence, a piece is tore. Did Justin have something weighing on her conscience? Some dark secret she needed to repent. Something was definitely fishy with Justin. She claimed that she gave her only copy of the Rubaiyat to Alfred Boxall. But the Summerton man's copy of the Rubaiyat had her phone number in it. Well, she clearly liked to give copies of the Rubaiyat as gifts. But what if she actually did give a copy to another man, to the Summerton man? Do you think Justin lied to the police? I know she lied to the police. <laughs> Justin's daughter confirmed as much in an interview with 60 Minutes. In that same interview, she alluded to her theory that her mother was a spy. Whoa, wait a minute. I thought the Summerton man was the spy. But now you're telling me Justin was the spy as well? She wasn't the only secret spy. Decades after the Summerton man died, Alfred Boxel finally admitted in an ABC documentary Inside Story that he had an espionage background himself. Mr. Boxall, you had been working, hadn't you, in an intelligence unit before you met this young woman. Did you talk to her about that at all? No. Was it not done to speak about those things? Well, it was not done to, to speak about any army affair. So she couldn't have known about your involvement with intelligence? Unless someone else told her. Because you see what I'm getting at. There are, There is a theory, isn't there, about this whole affair that the man on the beach was a spy of some kind. Hmm. It's um, <coughs> quite a melodramatic thesis, isn't it? 
It sounds like someone is being coy. Well, he certainly didn't deny that the Summerton man was an intelligence operative. So if Alfred Boxall wasn't the Summerton man, could he have been involved in the Summerton man's murder? Well, that would corroborate the statement a witness gave detectives 10 years after the Summerton man died. Well, the witness claimed that he had seen a man in nice clothes carrying another man over his shoulders. Maybe the Summerton man didn't walk down the beach. Maybe he was placed there after he died. Well, that would explain why he didn't have sand in his shoes. Well, the witness thought he was seeing a man carrying a drunk friend. But what if that well-dressed man was carrying a body? What if that well-dressed man was Alfred Boxall? Right now, we've got a lot of unanswered questions. What was the meaning behind that secret code in the Rubaiyat? Do you see this? There's a second code hidden behind these five lines of letters. I think it's Morse code. Who is the mysterious woman, Jestin? Was she a spy? Spasiba. Mommy, what's that funny language you were speaking to that woman? That's Russian, darling. Spasiba means thank you. How do you know Russian? That's mommy's business, not yours. Was Jestin a double agent? Or did she have a more intimate connection to the Summerton man? You always the one you love. You can't come here anymore. How can you say that to me? Prosper and I are going to be married. There's no room for you in my life. I have a right to see him. Please don't make this so hard for me. Hard for you? What about me? He's my son. There are other suspects to investigate as well. Like the masked man who threatened Roma Magnanson, a woman whose husband had attempted to identify the Summerton man. Ah! What do you want from me? Your husband better keep his big mouth shut and stop talking to the police. Or else. Hello? This is my last warning. You better not stick your nose into the Magnuson affair if you don't want to have a little accident. Who is this? Why do you keep calling me? Sounds ominous. Who was the Summerton man? An American spy? A Russian double agent. A jilted lover? There was a door to which I found no key. There was a veil past which I could not see. Some little talk a while of me and thee. There seemed, and then no more of thee and me. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review and tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the murder of the Summerton Man. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Jay Silvers, with production assistance by Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders is written by Jeanette Manning and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Mick Lambeth, Janice Liebhart, Michael Malconian, and Nicholas Massoud. <laughs>